0: 29 AD, there was one about to change the world. Fully man, fully God, Jesus. Next to him was a friend who witnessed everything. He saw early miracles, he sat at his right hand, his own eyes saw Jesus transfigured, the very heart of Christ was poured out to him and he was there at the cross on the day history was altered. These are the words and the story of John. Alright, tonight my intent is to process this text of John 20 uh, with two focal points in mind. Uh, the first is the why the resurrection of Jesus matters, and uh, the second is the compassion of Jesus. And my aim is that you will be uh, inspired to live boldly for Jesus, knowing that he is alive and is coming back, and that you will be encouraged by the compassion that Jesus demonstrates for his followers. So with that in mind, let's pray and ask God to move in our hearts and our minds. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thanks for these men. Thank you for this moment. Um, it's just incredible, Lord. We get, to, we get to sit here in these rooms and talk about your, your life and your death, your resurrection, Lord. And um, God, I just pray this wouldn't be stale to us. For those of us who grew up in church, Lord, this is stale. It's stale information. And that's so sad. This is the crux of Christianity, is this moment in in, in in this story. And so let it come alive, Lord. I pray, I pray, and I pray these guys would pray this with me that I'd get out of the way. Please just get me out of the way, Lord. So that this can be real, Lord. Do something different in our hearts that we would just believe this and it would change us in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first question is, why does the resurrection matter? You know, last chapter, we lived and we felt the brutality that Jesus experienced as he went through the crucifixion. And what really stood out to me was that the beating that Jesus took was was small in comparison to the trauma that he endured as he wore the filth and disgust and horror and every sin and vile atrocity that was ever committed by mankind and that will ever be committed by humans. And then he said, it's, it's finished. It's finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Then he gets placed in the tomb and everyone who had believed in him is left thinking, now what do we do? Now what do we do? And then in breaks chapter 20, it's Sunday morning and, and it's early and Mary Magdalene and the other women wake up and they head towards, towards Jesus' tomb carrying spices and they're intending to complete the burial arrangements for Jesus' body. They're boldly approaching the guarded tomb, not knowing if they'll be rejected or mocked or who or, or how they will, they will roll this stone away. And if you've ever smelled the odor of a gruesome death, they're bracing for themselves for the smell of myrrh and of aloe mixed with the stench of death. It was not a pretty scene that they were approaching. But what do they find? John 20, verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And in Matthew's account, it says, Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. (laughs) For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, but he's not here. He has, for he has risen. Jesus was dead But now he has risen. There is no stench of death. There is no body to prepare. Jesus is alive. And so returning back to the first question of the night, why does the resurrection matter? This is the question we all should be asking. It's the climax of all four gospel accounts. And for the gospel of John, it's the final proof upon which he rests his case. In verses 30 through 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the single truth upon which our entire faith depends the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the, is from the dead is the single truth upon which our f- entire faith depends. Why? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, the Apostle Paul is addressing this very question as he writes to the Corinthians, because they're asking the question, Is the resurrection real? And so the question is, why does the resurrection matter? The first reason the resurrection matters is that Jesus' resurrection means that we too will be resurrected. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22, Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. If you look at scripture, there's actually nine other instances in which someone was dead and then they were raised from the dead. Ten if you include Jesus. The question is, what is different about those instances from Jesus? Those were resuscitations, Jesus is a resurrection. And what's the difference? The other nine were raised only to eventually die again. <laughs> but Jesus resurrected. He undid death. He reversed death. He negated death. Death was not and will never be Jesus' end. So what does that mean for us? For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ Christ. All shall be made alive. Accepting Christ as our resurrected Savior and Lord means that death is not where our story ends. If Christ was resurrected, so too will we be just as he is. That's the first reason the resurrection matters. The second reason is that Jesus' resurrection means that our sins are truly, eternally forgiven. Paul says that, "If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins." One of the leaders in our group helped frame this in a way that's really easy to understand. Think of the Levitical sacrificial system as a math equation. X-sacrifice covered Y sins for Z-specific time frame. You would sacrifice this lamb or these pigeons, and that sacrifice would cover a finite number of sins for a finite span of time. And the payment was always retroactive. It was always paying for the sins of your past. The sacrificial death of an infinite and sinless being is the only possible way to cover all sins forever. But this only makes sense if the sacrifice lives again after being sacrificed. Otherwise, it's not an infinite being. So by dying for our sins and rising again, Jesus pays the blood price for our sins and in his his death and the shedding of his blood. And by rising never to die again, he validates himself as the perfect, perfect, infinite sacrifice. A sacrifice, do the math, a sacrifice of infinite worth and life guarantees that our sins are truly, eternally, infinitely forgiven. That's Jesus. The third reason that the resurrection of Jesus matters is because it confirms that he is coming back again. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul finishes this off and he says, Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Amen. Amen. Come on. The message that carried the disciples out forth into the world was not just that he had forgiven their sins and provided them with eternal life. It was that he is the king and that the kingdom the disciples had been hearing about and Jesus had been telling them about and they had been dreaming of is coming. That took them out the door. The resurrection matters because it means that the king is not dead. The king is alive, and he's coming back. And when he comes back, everything that is evil and broken and painful, including death, will be brought to an end and will be replaced by a new heaven and earth. Come on. Jesus' resurrection matters because it means he's coming back, y'all. He's coming back. So my question to you is, how does your... Belief in the resurrection of Jesus need to change so that every day you can live, number one, you can live boldly, believing that even if your body's killed, you're not dead. So you can live free of shame, knowing that in Christ, your sins are infinitely forgiven. And you can live aggressively, sharing the gospel with ferocity, standing on the truth that Jesus, the King, is coming back soon. Whew. All right, shift gears with me. That's why the resurrection matters. Now let's turn our attention to the compassion of Jesus. In John 20, there's three distinct scenes which can be summarized concisely. We see Mary and Jesus. We see the disciples And Jesus and then we see Thomas and Jesus what I hoped for when I when I got to this this chapter was I'm like all right chapter 20 the resurrection Jesus is alive everyone's amped up Jesus comes back let's go they hit the ground running and that's not what we see John 20 is not that Jesus is resurrected and yet you have to jump ahead to the book of Acts and wait a full 40 days before you see any real action occur. I was a little disappointed. But then I took a step back and I leaned into the emotions of the people in these scenes that, we, that we're reading. And what I saw was a reality that, that looks a lot more like what I find in my own life. And it's a bunch of people who are really struggling. And then it's Jesus who loves and helps in the midst of their struggles. The first scene is, is Mary and Jesus. Mary Magdalene, she finds the empty tomb, she runs and she gets Peter and John. They come back to the tomb, they leave her in the dust, they do what they're doing, they're gone by the time she, she gets there, and they're back at their house, and she's left. She's there. And John says, But Peter or but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, She stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, they've taken my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. In this moment, I hope you can can feel the hurt and the sadness that Mary is experiencing. Mary loved. She loved Jesus. Her heart is broken with the loss of her teacher and her Lord, who so radically changed the course of her life. And what we see her asking is, where's Jesus? I thought he was Savior and Lord, but now all I can ask is, where where is he? And what does Jesus do? Having, Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. Jesus feels Mary's hurts, and he takes action to relieve her pain. What does he do? The first thing that we see, is that he draws near to her. In the book of Jeremiah, God says, then you will call upon me and you will come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And we see this truth played out beautifully in this picture with Mary. Mary is weeping, broken, desperately, desperately seeking to find Jesus with all of her heart. She's looking for him. Where is Jesus? Do you have him? Do you have him? If you put him somewhere, I'll take him. She's looking for Jesus. And he shows up. Jesus shows up. That's the first thing he does is he draws near to Mary. The second thing that he does is he asks questions. He says, "Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking?" You guys think that, that Jesus didn't, didn't know who she was looking for or why she was crying? I certainly don't think so. And so the question is, if he, if he did know what she, what she was doing, why would he ask the questions? Because those are the questions that would go straight to Mary's heart. Think about if you just lost your dad or you just lost your wife and someone who you trust comes up to you and they say, Are you okay what are you feeling how are you feeling what are you struggling with what would that do for you all of a sudden you feel this care from them you you realize somebody cares for me and and when they ask those questions and someone asks you those what happens most people they melt it gives you a chance to open up your heart and to express what you're feeling. Jesus asked those questions so that Mary could open her heart and share her hurts. Thirdly, Jesus comforts her. Jesus said to her, Mary, that's all it took. The simple sound of Jesus saying Mary's name was everything she needed to be relieved of her hurt and her pain. Jesus Jesus saying her name was him saying, it's me. Jesus, who you've been looking for, I'm here, you aren't alone, I love you, I know you, and I'm for you, Jesus comforts her. When was a time when you were grieving or mourning the loss of someone you loved, and how did Jesus comfort you? Think back, think back on it, try to remember that time. And if you're in that season now and feeling alone, who is one fellow Christian who you can reach out to And allow them to share in your pain and together experience the comfort of Jesus. The second scene that we see is Jesus and the disciples. And we find them gathered together but without Thomas. And what do we see? On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Look at the state of these guys. These are the guys who've been walking with Jesus. He'd been teaching with them, sharing that with them, encouraging them, and trying to help them see and understand what the future looked like. And yet despite all of that, when calamity strikes, it's as though none of that happened. Like none, none of that belief is there. They're hiding. They are hiding in fear. This, uh, this story reminded me of uh, the first big fight that I, I remember with me and my wife, uh, we, we we didn't fight a lot early. Uh, we were probably just sweeping under the rug. But uh, after we had our first daughter and lack of sleep, uh, we're standing in our condo and we were fighting over what type of formula uh, that we would feed our daughter. Um, that was a losing battle, and um, and I was mad, and uh, and we about what we were disagreeing about. But what I really connected with this within this text was that. Uh, I was afraid. I stormed out of our condo and I went to Target and that's a, that's a long story but I came back and I was hiding in our garage. I kid you not. I was hiding in our garage because what I was thinking was where are we going to go from here? What, what are we going to do? And It was genuine. I was really afraid. I was like, man, we hadn't fought like that before. and We were mad and I'm like, man, how, how are we going to resolve this? And so what does Jesus do when we're afraid? Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't chastise them or rebuke them for being afraid or lacking faith. Jesus, in his love, understood what they were experiencing and he had compassion for them. What does he do? He meets them where they are. He reminds them of who he is and then he fills them with his spirit. Going back to that, that fight with my wife, I'm hiding there in, the base, or in our garage, I'm on the, the concrete, I'm literally on my knees just thinking like, where do I go from here, Lord? And that's what the disciples are saying. They're in this room. They're thinking, where do we go from here? And for me, I am I experience what these guys experience. I'm afraid. And all of a sudden, I sense the Lord's presence. It's like, have you ever been in that moment where you're like, you're tough, right? You're a tough guy, but like you're feeling emotional. And you're like, oh man, it's welling up. And then someone comes in and you're like, whoa. You feel that presence and you're like, got to straighten up. It was like, I could feel that. All of a sudden, there was a shift in the room and like the disciples, all of a sudden, I wasn't alone. And I was reminded. I could, I could think back of, of the times when, when God was faithful, when, when I was scared, when my wife and I were having issues connecting with each other intimately, or when early in our marriage, I'm, I'm making mistakes. and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, Lord, I can't, I can't tell my wife this again. I can't tell her that I've, I've had those thoughts again. And, and, and the Lord shows up and he shows up and, and he reminds you, remember that, remember that, remember who I am, feel these, I'm here, I'm with you. And then he gives us courage, he fills us with his spirit. In that moment, I remember all of a sudden I had the courage to walk up those stairs and talk with my wife again and feel like, okay, we can work this out. Second Timothy 1.7 says, God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. That's what we see. When was a time in your life when you were really afraid, but Jesus showed up and he helped you? Don't forget those times. Don't forget those times. When you're afraid, recall those times. If you're in a state of fear right now, who is a Christian in your life who you can turn to and who you can share your fears with? and along with you who will ask God to remind you of his faithfulness and to fill you with the courage of his spirit. The final scene that we see here is that we're reintroduced to the disciple Thomas. And what we learn from, Jesus, from John's writing is that for reasons unknown to the reader, Thomas wasn't present with the disciples when Jesus first visited them in the locked room. And this leaves Thomas to hear about their uh, experience with Jesus secondhand. And I'd love to believe that Thomas had really good reasons, right? Like he was out caring for somebody else or, or he was you know, praying or something. But when you read his response to the testimony of the other disciples, they're talking about Jesus. We saw him. And you see his response. And he's got some clear internal tor- turmoil going on. He says, unless I see his hands, the marks of his nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. I've got a close friend who uh, he and his wife have been trying to get pregnant for over two years and uh, it's been really hard for them. And we've seen, um, we've really seen this guy's faith grow though. He's leaned into the Lord, he's given this up, he's given that up, he's, he's grown so much and it's been cool to watch him grow but then after years of trying and having miscarriages, he hit a moment and we're sitting with him and talking and he says, until I see that baby, that healthy baby, I'm not gonna believe in Jesus. His words were, don't F with me, Jesus. He said, until, he said to us, you guys can think what you want about Jesus, but until I see this myself, I will never believe. Doesn't it hurt to hear those words? I'll never believe. And it should hurt us though, because it shows us how angry and confused they're feeling inside. What they're thinking is, what Thomas is feeling, what my friend is feeling is, what is going on? Is this what I signed up for? Are you kidding me? I give my life to Jesus. This is what I get. This is what I get. Are you kidding me? This is garbage. This is garbage. And how does Jesus respond to that? Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with him this time. Although the disciple, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand out and place it in my side. He says, don't disbelieve, but believe. And then Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. Guys, can you not see the amazing love and compassion that Jesus has for you? in our sorrows, in our fears, and equally in our anger and our resentment towards God. He does not talk down to us or condemn us. He finds us. He meets us. He helps us. And he even often does it on our own terms. Watch what Jesus does. He doesn't get offended by Thomas's brash proclamation. I'll never believe. He seeks Thomas out. He comes to him and he walks up closely to Thomas and he says, Here you go. Check it out. Check out my scars. Come on. Check it out. Don't disbelieve. Believe. And Thomas believes. God is not a genie in a bottle, but to those who do love him and who are his, he wants you to believe. In that very day, in that very day, that my good friend said aloud those words about not believing God unless he provided him with, and his wife with a child, he comes home, and I kid you not, guess what? They're having a boy. Don't disbelieve, but believe. I want you to believe. I love you. I want you to believe. I don't care about the terms. I'll take your terms. I just want you to believe. I just want you to believe. What are you believing about Jesus' love towards you? Do you believe that he doesn't care, that what you want doesn't matter to him? that he's cold or disconnected. Who do you relate to in these scenes? Mary in her sorrow, the disciples in their fear, or Thomas in his anger? What truth about Jesus' love for you will you accept today? In conclusion, Jesus is resurrected. He was dead but he is now and forever alive. What's that mean for us? In the grand scheme, it means I have life. If he died and was raised, he can and will do that for me too, if I believe in him. It means I'm eternally forgiven. His sacrifice is enough. Do the math. Do the math. Jesus is coming back. He's our living king, and when he comes back, he's coming to conquer everything and to make all things new. And in the right now, it means it means that you have a living Savior who loves you, who loves you. He suffered for you, he died for you, and he still isn't done. In the midst of whatever you're facing in life, Jesus is is unfazed, but he is not disconnected. He wants to comfort you in your sadness. He wants to give you courage when you're afraid. He wants to. And he wants to help you believe when you are angry. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Jesus, You are alive. Come on. You're coming back. You're here. You're with us. You're not dead. You're not distant. You're here, and you love us. You've forgiven us. You've given us life. You've given us everything, and every single day, you are here. We are unstoppable because of you. There's nothing that can stop us. Today and this day, you're here. You're giving us compassion. You're giving us love. You're giving us courage. And in the long term, you've given us life. You've given us forgiveness. And you're coming back to make a place that's perfect. (sighs) Bring it back, Lord. Come on. Bring it now. Let that be alive in our hearts, Lord. I pray over these guys right now. Or don't let your resurrection be stale. It's been stale in my heart, and this brought it to life in me. Let it be alive in these guys. Let the resurrection carry them like it carried Paul. Let's get out of here and go tell people, because you are alive, and that means so much. Lord, move these men. Move us, because you are alive. In Jesus' name, amen.